Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 2, Chapter 18 of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book 2, Riches. Chapter 18. A Castle in the Air Manifold are the cares of wealth and state. Mr. Dorrit's satisfaction in remembering that it had not been necessary for him to announce himself to Clennam and Co., or to make an allusion to his having had any knowledge of the intrusive person of that name, had been damped overnight, while it was still fresh, by a debate that arose within him whether or no he should take the marshalsea in his way back and look at the old gate. He had decided not to do so, and had astonished the coachman by being very fierce with him for proposing to go over London Bridge, and recross the river by Waterloo Bridge, a course which would have taken him almost within sight of his old quarters. Still, for all that, the question had raised a conflict in his breast, and for some odd reason, or no reason, he was vaguely dissatisfied. Even at the Myrtle dinner-table next day, he was so out of sorts about it that he continued at intervals to turn it over and over, in a manner frightfully inconsistent with the good society surrounding him. It made him hot to think what the chief butler's opinion of him would have been if that illustrious personage could have plumbed with that heavy eye of his the stream of his meditations. The farewell banquet was of a gorgeous nature, and wound up his visit in a most brilliant manner. Fanny, combined with the attractions of her youth and beauty, a certain weight of self-sustainment, as if she had been married twenty years, he felt that he could leave her with a quiet mind to tread the paths of distinction, and wished, but without abatement of patronage, and without prejudice to the retiring virtues of his favourite child, that he had such another daughter. "'My dear,' he told her at parting, "'our family looks to you to uh, assert its dignity, and mm, maintain its importance.' I know you will never disappoint it. No, papa, said Fanny. You may rely upon that, I think. My best love to dearest Amy, and I will write to her very soon. Shall I convey any message to uh, anybody else? asked Mr. Dorrit, in an insinuating manner. Papa, said Fanny, before whom Mrs. General instantly loomed, no, I thank you. "'But you're very kind, Pa. I must beg to be excused. There is no other message to send. I thank you, dear Papa, that it would be at all agreeable to you to take.' They parted in an outer drawing-room, where only Mr. Sparkler waited on his lady, and dutifully bided his time for shaking hands. 
when Mr. Sparkler was admitted to this closing audience, Mr. Merdle came creeping in, with not much more appearance of arms in his sleeves than if he had been the twin brother of Miss Biffin, and insisted on escorting Mr. Dorrit downstairs. All Mr. Dorrit's protestations being in vain, he enjoyed the honour of being accompanied to the hall-door by this distinguished man, who, as Mr. Dorrit told him in shaking hands on the step, had really overwhelmed him with attentions and services during this memorable visit. Thus they parted, Mr. Dorrit entering his carriage with a swelling breast, not at all sorry that his courier, who had come to take leave in the lower regions, should have an opportunity of beholding the grandeur of his departure. The aforesaid grandeur was yet full upon Mr. Dorrit when he alighted at his hotel. Helped out by the courier and some half-dozen of the hotel servants, he was passing through the hall with a serene magnificence, when, lo, a sight presented itself that struck him dumb and motionless. John Chivery, in his best clothes, with his tall hat under his arm, his ivory-handled cane genteelly embarrassing his deportment, and a bundle of cigars in his hand. "'Now, young man,' said the porter, "'this is the gentleman. This young man has persisted in waiting, sir, saying you would be glad to see him.' Mr. Dorrit glared at the young man, choked, and said in the mildest of tones, "'Ah, young John. It is uh, young John, I think, is it not?' "'Yes, sir,' returned young John. "'I uh, thought it was young John,' said Mr. Dorrit. "'The young man may come up,' turning to the attendants as he passed on. "'Oh, yes, he may come up. Let young John follow. I will speak to him above.' Young John followed, smiling and much gratified. Mr. Dorrit's rooms were reached. Candles were lighted. The attendants withdrew. "'Now, sir,' said Mr. Dorrit, turning round upon him, and seizing him by the collar when they were safely alone, "'what do you mean by this?' The amazement and horror depicted in the unfortunate John's face, for he had rather expected to be embraced next, were of that powerfully expressive nature that Mr. Dorrit withdrew his hand and merely glared at him. "'How dare you do this?' said Mr. Dorrit. "'How do you presume to come here? How dare you insult me?' "'I insult you, sir?' cried young John. "'How?' "'Yes, sir,' returned Mr. Dorrit. "'Insult me. Your coming here is an affront, an impertinence, an audacity. You are not wanted here. Who sent you here? What? Ah, the devil do you do here?' "'I th thought, sir,' said young John, with as pale and shocked a face as ever had been turned to Mr. Dorrit's in his life, even in his college life. "'I thought, sir, you mightn't object to have the goodness to accept a bundle.' "'Damn your bundle, sir!' cried Mr. Dorrit in irrepressible rage. "'I don't smoke!' "'I humbly beg your pardon, sir. You used to.' "'Tell me again!' cried Mr. Dorrit, quite beside himself, and I'll take the poker to you. John Chivery backed to the door. Stop, sir, cried Mr. Dorrit. Stop. Sit down. Confound you. Sit down. John Chivery dropped into the chair nearest the door, and Mr. Dorrit walked up and down the room, rapidly at first, then more slowly. Once he went to the window and stood there with his forehead against the glass, all of a sudden he turned and said, "'What else did you come for, sir?' 
nothing else in the world, sir. Oh, dear me, only to say, sir, that I hope you was well, and only to ask if Miss Amy was well. What's that to you, sir? retorted Mr. Dorrit. It's nothing to me, sir, by rights. I never thought of lessening the distance betwixt us, I'm sure. I know it's a liberty, sir, but I never thought you'd have taken it ill, upon my word and honour, sir, said young John with emotion. In my poor way, I'm too proud to have come, I assure you, if I had thought so. Mr. Dorrit was ashamed. He went back to the window, and leaned his forehead against the glass for some time. When he turned, he had his handkerchief in his hand, and he had been wiping his eyes with it, and he looked tired and ill. "'Young John, I'm very sorry to have been hasty with you, but, ah, some remembrances are not happy remembrances, and hmm, you shouldn't have come.' "'I feel that now, sir,' returned John Chivery, "'but I didn't before, and heaven knows I meant no harm, sir.' "'No, no,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'I'm sure of that. Ha!' "'Give me your hand, young John. Give me your hand.' Young John gave it, but Mr. Dorrit had driven his heart out of it, and nothing could change his face now from its white, shocked look. "'There,' said Mr. Dorrit, slowly shaking hands with him, "'sit down again, young John.' "'Thank you, sir, but I'd rather stand.' Mr. Dorrit sat down instead. After painfully holding his head a little while, he turned it to his visitor, and said, with an effort to be easy, "'And uh, how is your father, young John? How, uh, how are they all, young John?' "'Thank you, sir. They're all pretty well, sir. They're not any ways complaining.' Hm, you who are in your uh, old business, I see, John,' said Mr. Dorrit with a glance at the offending bundle he had anathematized, "'Partly, sir, I'm in my—John hesitated a little—father's business likewise.' "'Oh, indeed,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'do you ha hum, go upon the ha—lock, uh, sir? Yes, sir.' "'Much uh, to do, John?' "'Yes, sir. We're pretty heavy at present. I don't know how it is, but we generally are pretty heavy.' "'At this time of the year, young John?' "'Mostly. At all times of the year, sir. I don't know the time that makes much difference to us. I wish you good-night, sir.' "'Stay a moment, John. Ah, stay a moment. Mm. Leave me the cigars, John. I have beg.' "'Certainly, sir.' John put them, with a trembling hand, on the table. "'Stay a moment, young John. Uh, stay another moment. It would be a gratification to me to send a little hmm, testimonial by such a trusty messenger to be divided among hmm, them, them, according to their wants. Would you object to take it, John?' "'Not in any way, sir. There's many of them, I'm sure, that would be the better for it. "'Thank you, John. I, I'll uh, write it, John.' His hand shook so that he was a long time writing it, and wrote it in a tremulous scrawl at last. It was a cheque for one hundred pounds. He folded it up, put it in young John's hand, and pressed the hand in his. 
I hope you'll uh, overlook mm, uh, what has passed, John. Don't speak of it, sir, on any account. I don't in any ways bear malice, I'm sure. But nothing while John was there could change John's face to its natural colour and expression, or restore John's natural manner. And John said Mr. Dorrit, giving his hand a final pressure and releasing it. I hope we are agree that we have spoken together in confidence, and that you will abstain in going out from saying anything to any one that might mm, suggest that uh, once I— Oh, I assure you, sir, returned John Chivery, in my poor humble way, sir, I'm too proud and honourable to do it, sir. Mr. Dorrit was not too proud and honourable to listen at the door, that he might ascertain for himself whether John really went straight out, or lingered to have any talk with any one. There was no doubt that he went direct out at the door, and away down the street with a quick step. After remaining alone for an hour, Mr. Dorrit rang for the courier, who found him with his chair on the hearth-rug, sitting with his back towards him, and his face to the fire. "'You can take that bundle of cigars to smoke on the journey, if you like.' said Mr. Dorrit, with a careless wave of his hand. "'Ah! Brought by, hm, little offering from a uh, son of an old tenant of mine.' Next morning's sun saw Mr. Dorrit's equipage upon the Dover Road, where every red-jacketed postillion was the sign of a cruel house, established for the unmerciful plundering of travellers. The whole business of the human race, between London and Dover, being spoliation— Mr. Dorrit was waylaid at Dartford, pillaged at Gravesend, rifled at Rochester, fleeced at Sittingbourne, and sacked at Canterbury. However, it being the courier's business to get him out of the hands of the banditti, the courier brought him off at every stage, and so the red jackets went gleaming merrily along the spring landscape, rising and falling to a regular measure between Mr. Dorrit in his snug corner and the next chalky rise in the dusty highway. Another day's son saw him at Calais, and having now got the channel between himself and John Chivery, he began to feel safe, and to find that the foreign air was lighter to breathe than the air of England. On again by the heavy French roads for Paris, having now quite recovered his equanimity, Mr. Dorrit, in his snug corner, fell to castle-building as he rode along. It was evident that he had a very large castle in hand. All day long he was running towers up, taking towers down, adding a wing here, putting on a battlement there, looking to the walls, strengthening the defences, giving ornamental touches to the interior, making in all respects a superb castle of it. His preoccupied face so clearly denoted the pursuit in which he was engaged, that every cripple at the post-houses, not blind, who shoved his little battered tin box in at the carriage window for charity in the name of heaven, charity in the name of Our Lady, charity in the name of all the saints, knew as well what work he was at, as their countryman Le Brun could have known it himself, though he had made that English traveller the subject of a special physiognomical treatise. Arrived at Paris, and resting there three days, Mr. Dorrit strolled much about the streets alone, looking in at the shop-windows, and particularly the jewellers' windows. Ultimately he went into the most famous jewellers, and said he wanted to buy a little gift for a lady. It was a charming little woman to whom he said it, a sprightly little woman, dressed in perfect taste, who came out of a green velvet bower to attend upon him, 
from posting up some dainty little books of account, which one could hardly suppose to be ruled for the entry of any articles more commercial than kisses, at a dainty little shining desk which looked in itself like a sweetmeat. For example, then, said the little woman, what species of gift did Monsieur desire? A love-gift? Mr. Dorrit smiled, and said, "'Eh, uh, well, perhaps. What did he know? It was always possible, the sex being so charming. Would she show him some?' "'Most willingly,' said the little woman, flattered and enchanted to show him many. But pardon. To begin with, he would have the great goodness to observe that they were love-gifts, and they were nuptial gifts. For example, these ravishing earrings and this necklace, so superb to correspond, were what one called a love-gift. These brooches and these rings, of a beauty so gracious and celestial, were what one called, with the permission of Monsieur, nuptial gifts. Perhaps it would be a good arrangement, Mr. Dorrit hinted, smiling, to purchase both, and to present the love-gift first, and to finish with the nuptial offering. Ah, heaven! said the little woman, laying the tips of the fingers of her two little hands against each other. That would be generous indeed. That would be a special gallantry. And without doubt the lady so crushed with gifts would find them irresistible. Mr. Dorrit was not sure of that. But, for example, the sprightly little woman was very sure of it, she said. So Mr. Dorrit bought a gift of each sort, and paid handsomely for it. As he strolled back to his hotel afterwards, he carried his head high, having plainly got up his castle now to a much loftier altitude than the two square towers of Notre-Dame. Building away with all his might, but reserving the plans of his castle exclusively for his own eye, Mr. Dorrit posted away for Marseilles. Building on, building on, busily, busily, from morning to night, falling asleep and leaving great blocks of building materials dangling in the air, waking again to resume work and get them into their places, what time the courier in the rumble, smoking young John's best cigars, left a little thread of thin light smoke behind, perhaps as he built a castle or two, with stray pieces of Mr. Dorrit's money. Not a fortified town that they passed in all their journey was as strong. Not a cathedral summit was as high as Mr. Dorrit's castle. Neither the Seine nor the Rhone sped with the swiftness of that peerless building, nor was the Mediterranean deeper than its foundations nor were the distant landscapes on the Cornice Road, nor the hills and bay of Genoa the superb, more beautiful. Mr. Dorrit and his mattress castle were disembarked among the dirty white houses and dirtier felons of Civita Vicia, and thence scrambled on to Rome as they could, to the filth that festered on the way. End of Book Two Chapter Eighteen Book Two, Chapter Nineteen of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches, Chapter Nineteen, The Storming of the Castle in the Air. The sun had gone down full four hours, and it was later than most travellers would like it to be for finding themselves outside the walls of Rome when Mr. Dorrit's carriage, still on its last wearisome stage, rattled over the solitary campagna. The savage herdsmen, and the fierce-looking peasants, 
who had checkered the way while the light lasted, had all gone down with the sun, and left the wilderness blank. At some turns of the road a pale flare on the horizon, like an exhalation, from the ruin-sown land, showed that the city was yet far off. But this poor relief was rare and short-lived. The carriage dipped down again into a hollow of the black dry sea, and for a long time there was nothing visible save its petrified swell and the gloomy sky. Mr. Dorrit, though he had his castle-building to engage his mind, could not be quite easy in that desolate place. He was far more curious in every swerve of the carriage, and every cry of the postilions, than he had been since he quitted London. The valet on the box evidently quaked. The courier in the rumble was not altogether comfortable in his mind. As often as Mr. Dorrit let down the glass and looked back at him, which was very often, he saw him smoking John Chivery out, it is true, but still generally standing up the while and looking about him, like a man who had his suspicions, and kept upon his guard. Then would Mr. Dorrit, pulling up the glass again, reflect that those postilions were cutthroat-looking fellows, and that he would have done better to have slept at Civita Vicia, and have started betimes in the morning. But for all this, he worked at his castle in the intervals. And now, fragments of ruinous enclosure, yawning window-gap, and crazy wall, deserted houses, leaking wells, broken water-tanks, spectral cypress-trees, patches of tangled vine, and the changing of the track to a long, irregular, disordered lane where everything was crumbling away, from the unsightly buildings to the jolting road. Now these objects showed that they were nearing Rome. And now a sudden twist and stoppage of the carriage inspired Mr. Dorrit with the mistrust that the brigand moment was come for twisting him into a ditch and robbing him, until, letting down the glass again and looking out, he perceived himself assailed by nothing worse than a funeral procession, which came mechanically chaunting by, with an indistinct show of dirty vestments, lurid torches, swinging censers, and a great cross borne before a priest. He was an ugly priest by torchlight, of a lowering aspect, with an overhanging brow, and as his eyes met those of Mr. Dorrit, looking bareheaded out of the carriage, his lips, moving as they chaunted, seemed to threaten that important traveller. Likewise the action of his hand, which was in fact his manner of returning the traveller's salutation, seemed to come in aid of that menace. So thought Mr. Dorrit, made fanciful by the weariness of building and travelling, as the priest drifted past him, and the procession straggled away, taking its dead along with it. Upon their so different way went Mr. Dorrit's company, too, and soon, with their coach-load of luxuries from the two great capitals of Europe, they were, like the Goths reversed, beating at the gates of Rome. Mr. Dorrit was not expected by his own people that night. He had been, but they had given him up until to-morrow, not doubting that it was later than he would care in those parts to be out. Thus, when his equipage stopped at his own gate, no one but the porter appeared to receive him. "'Was Miss Dorrit from home?' he asked. "'No, she was within.' "'Good,' said Mr. Dorrit, to the assembling servants. "'Let them keep where they were. Let them help to unload the carriage. He would find Miss Dorrit for himself.' So he went up his grand staircase, slowly and tired, and looked into various chambers which were empty, until he saw a light in a small ante-room. It was a curtained nook, like a tent, within two other rooms, and it looked warm and bright in colour as he approached it through the dark avenue they made. 
There was a draped doorway, but no door, and as he stopped here, looking in unseen, he felt a pang, surely not like jealousy, for why like jealousy? There was only his daughter and his brother there, he, with his chair drawn to the hearth, enjoying the warmth of the evening wood-fire, she, seated at a little table, busied with some embroidery work. Allowing for the great difference in the still life of the picture, the figures were much the same as of old, his brother being sufficiently like himself to represent himself, for a moment, in the composition. So had he sat many a night, over a coal-fire far away, so had she sat, devoted to him. Yet surely there was nothing to be jealous of in the old miserable poverty. Whence, then, the pang in his heart? "'Do you know, uncle, I think you're growing young again?' Her uncle shook his head, and said, "'Since when, my dear, since when?' "'I think,' returned Little Dorrit, plying her needle, "'that you have been growing younger for weeks past. So cheerful, uncle, so ready, and so interested. My dear child, all you, all me, uncle.' "'Yes, yes, you have done me a world of good. You have been so considerate of me, and so tender with me, and so delicate in trying to hide your attentions from me, that I, well, 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 it's treasured up, my darling, treasured up.' "'There is nothing in it but your own fresh fancy, uncle,' said Little Dorrit cheerfully. "'Well, well, well,' murmured the old man, "'thank God!' She paused for an instant in her work to look at him, and her look revived that former pain in her father's breast, in his poor weak breast, so full of contradictions, vacillations, inconsistencies, the little peevish perplexities of this ignorant life, mists which the morning without a night only can clear away. "'I have been freer with you, you see, my dove,' said the old man, "'since we have been alone. I say alone, for I don't count Mrs. General. I don't care for her. She has nothing to do with me. But I know Fanny was impatient of me. And I don't wonder at it, or complain of it, for I am sensible that I must be in the way.' though I try to keep out of it as well as I can. I know I am not fit company for our company. My brother William, said the old man admiringly, is fit company for monarchs. But not so your uncle, my dear. Frederick Dorrit is no credit to William Dorrit, and he knows it quite well. Ah! "'Why, here's your father, Amy. My dear William, welcome back. My beloved brother, I am rejoiced to see you.' Turning his head and speaking, he had caught sight of him as he stood in the doorway. Little Dorrit, with a cry of pleasure, put her arms about her father's neck, and kissed him again and again. Her father was a little impatient, and a little querulous. "'I am glad to find you at last, Amy,' he said. "'Ha! <laughs> really, I am glad to find hmm, anyone to receive me at last. I appear to have been ah, so 
little expected, that upon my word I began to, ah, to think it might be right to offer an apology for, ah, taking the liberty of coming back at all. "'It was so late, my dear William,' said his brother, "'that we had given you up for the night.' "'I am stronger than you, dear Frederick,' returned his brother, with an elaboration of fraternity in which there was severity, "'and I hope I can travel without detriment at ah, any hour I choose.' "'Surely, surely,' returned the other, with a misgiving that he had given offence, "'surely, William?' "'Thank you, Amy,' pursued Mr. Dorrit, as she helped him to put off his wrappers. I can do it without assistance. I uh, need not trouble you, Amy. Could I have a morsel of bread and a glass of wine, or hmm, would it cause too much inconvenience? Dear father, you shall have supper in a very few minutes. Thank you, my love, said Mr. Dorrit, with a reproachful frost upon him. I uh, am afraid I am causing inconvenience. Mrs. General, pretty well. Mrs. General complained of a headache, and of being fatigued, and so, when we gave you up, she went to bed, dear. Perhaps, Mr. Dorrit thought, that Mrs. General had done well in being overcome by the disappointment of his not arriving. At any rate, his face relaxed, and he said with obvious satisfaction, "'Extremely sorry to hear that Mrs. General is not well.' During this short dialogue, his daughter had been observant of him, with something more than her usual interest. It would seem as though he had a changed or worn appearance in her eyes, and he perceived and resented it, for he said with renewed peevishness, when he had divested himself of his travelling cloak, and had come to the fire, "'Amy, what are you looking at? What do you see in me that causes you to ah, concentrate your solicitude on me in that hmm, very particular manner? I did not know it, father. I beg your pardon. It gladdens my eyes to see you again. That's all. Don't say that's all, because ah, that's not all. You hmm, you think, said Mr. Dorrit with an accusatory emphasis, that I am not looking well. "'I thought you looked a little tired, love.' "'Then you are mistaken,' said Mr. Dorrit. "'Ah! I am not tired. Ah! Hmm, I am very much fresher than I was when I went away.' He was so inclined to be angry, that she said nothing more in her justification, but remained quietly beside him, embracing his arm. As he stood thus, with his brother on the other side, he fell into a heavy doze, of not a minute's duration and awoke with a start. "'Frederick,' he said, turning to his brother, "'I recommend you to go to bed immediately.' "'No, William, I'll wait and see you sup.' "'Frederick,' he retorted, "'I beg you to go to bed. I uh, make it a personal request that you go to bed. You ought to have been in bed long ago. You're very feeble.' "'Ha!' said the old man, who had no wish but to please him. Well, 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 I dare say I am. My dear Frederick, returned Mr. Dorrit, with an astonishing superiority to his brother's failing powers, there can be no doubt of it. 
it is painful to me to see you so weak ha it distresses me mm, i don't find you looking at all well you are not fit for this sort of thing you should be more careful you should be very careful shall i go to bed asked frederick dear frederick said mr dorrit do i adjure you good night brother i hope you will be stronger to-morrow i am not at all pleased with your looks good night dear fellow after dismissing his brother in this gracious way he fell into a doze again before the old man was well out of the room and he would have stumbled forward upon the logs but for his daughter's restraining hold your uncle wanders very much aby he said when he was thus roused he is less ah, coherent and his conversation is more mm, broken than i have ah, mm, ever known has he had any illness since i have been gone no father you ah, see a great change in him amy i have not observed it dear greatly broken said mr dorrit greatly broken my poor affectionate failing frederick ah even taking into account what he was before he is mm, sadly broken his supper which was brought to him there and spread upon the little table where he had seen her working diverted his attention she sat at his side as in the days that were gone for the first time since those days ended they were alone and she helped him to his meat and poured out his drink for him as she had been used to do in the prison all this happened now for the first time since their accession to wealth she was afraid to look at him much after the offence he had taken but she noticed two occasions in the course of his meal when he all of a sudden looked at her and looked about him as if the association was so strong that he needed assurance from his sense of sight that they were not in the old prison-room both times he put his hand to his head as if he missed his old black cap though it had been ignominiously given away in the marshalsea and had never got free to that hour but still hovered about the yards on the head of his successor he took very little supper but was a long time over it and often reverted to his brother's declining state though he expressed the greatest pity for him he was almost bitter upon him he said the poor frederick ha hum drivelled there was no other word to express it drivelled poor fellow it was melancholy to reflect what amy must have undergone from the excessive tediousness of his society wandering and babbling on poor dear estimable creature wandering and babbling on if it had not been for the relief she had had in mrs general extremely sorry he then repeated with his former satisfaction that ha superior woman was poorly little dorrit in her watchful love would have remembered the lightest thing he said or did that night though she had had no subsequent reason to recall that night she always remembered that when he looked about him under the strong influence of the old association he tried to keep it out of her mind and perhaps out of his own too by immediately expatiating on the great riches and great company that had encompassed him in his absence and on the lofty position he and his family had to sustain nor did she fail to recall that there were two undercurrents side by side pervading all his discourse and all his manner one showing her how well he had got on without her and how independent he was of her 
the other, in a fitful and unintelligible way, almost complaining of her, as if it had been possible that she had neglected him while he was away. His telling her of the glorious state that Mr. Myrtle kept, and of the court that bowed before him, naturally brought him to Mrs. Myrtle. So naturally, indeed, that although there was an unusual want of sequence in the greater part of his remarks, he passed to her at once, and asked how she was. "'She's very well. She's going away next week.' "'Home?' asked Mr. Dorrit. "'After a few weeks' stay upon the road.' "'She will be a vast loss here,' said Mr. Dorrit. "'A vast, ah, acquisition at home.' to Fanny, and to, hm, the rest of the, ah, great world. Little Dorrit thought of the competition that was to be entered upon, and assented very softly. "'Mrs. Myrtle is going to have a great farewell assembly, dear, and a dinner before it. She has been expressing her anxiety that you should return in time. She has invited both you and me to her dinner.' "'She is, ah, very kind. When is the day?' the day after to-morrow. Write round in the morning, and say that I have returned, and shall, hm, be delighted. May I walk with you up the stairs to your room, dear? No, he answered, looking angrily round, for he was moving away, as if forgetful of leave-taking. You may not, Amy. I want no help. I am your father, not your infirm uncle." He checked himself as abruptly as he had broken into this reply, and said, "'You have not kissed me, Amy. Good night, my dear. We must marry—we uh, must marry you now.' With that he went, more slowly and more tired, up the staircase to his rooms, and almost as soon as he got there dismissed his valet. His next care was to look about him for his Paris purchases, and, after opening their cases and carefully surveying them, to put them away under lock and key. After that, what with dozing and what with castle-building, he lost himself for a long time, so that there was a touch of morning on the eastward rim of the desolate Campagna when he crept to bed. Mrs. General sent up her compliments in good time next day, and hoped he had rested well after his fatiguing journey. He sent down his compliments, and begged to inform Mrs. General that he had rested very well indeed, and was in high condition. Nevertheless, he did not come forth from his own rooms until late in the afternoon, and although he then caused himself to be magnificently arrayed for a drive with Mrs. General and his daughter, his appearance was scarcely up to his description of himself. As the family had no visitors that day, its four members dined alone together. He conducted Mrs. General to the seat at his right hand, with an immense ceremony, and Little Dorrit could not but notice, as she followed with her uncle, both that he was again elaborately dressed, and that his manner towards Mrs. General was very particular. The perfect formation of that accomplished lady's surface rendered it difficult to displace an atom of its genteel glaze, but Little Dorrit thought she descried a slight thaw of triumph in a corner of her frosty eye. Notwithstanding what may be called in these pages the pruny and prismatic nature of the family banquet, Mr. Dorrit several times fell asleep while it was in progress. His fits of dozing were as sudden as they had been overnight, and were as short and profound. When the first of these slumberings seized him, Mrs. General looked almost amazed, but on each recurrence of the symptoms she told her polite beads, papa, potatoes, poultry, prunes, and prism, and, by dint of going through that infallible performance, 
very slowly, appeared to finish her rosary at about the same time as Mr. Dorrit started from his sleep. He was again painfully aware of somnolent tendency in Frederick, which had no existence out of his own imagination, and after dinner, when Frederick had withdrawn, privately apologised to Mrs. General for the poor man. "'The most estimable and affectionate of brothers,' he said, "'but, ah, hmm, broken up altogether, unhappily declining fast.' "'Mr. Frederick, sir,' quoth Mrs. General, "'is habitually absent and drooping, but let us hope it is not so bad as that.' Mr. Dorrit, however, was determined not to let him off. "'Fast declining, madam, a wreck, a ruin, mouldering away before our eyes. Mm, good Frederick!' "'You left Mrs. Sparkler quite well and happy, I trust,' said Mrs. General, after heaving a cool sigh for Frederick. "'Surrounded,' replied Mr. Dorrit, "'by her, all that can charm the taste and mm, elevate the mind. Happy, my dear madam, in a mm, husband.' Mrs. General was a little fluttered, seeming delicately to put the word away with her gloves, as if there were no knowing what it might lead to. "'Fanny,' Mr. Dorrit continued, "'Fanny, Mrs. General, has high qualities. Ah, ambition, hmm, purpose, consciousness of ah, position, determination to support that position, ah, hmm, grace, beauty, and native nobility.' "'No doubt,' said Mrs. General, with a little extra stiffness. "'Combined with these qualities, madam,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'Fanny has, ah, manifested one blemish, which has made me, hmm, made me uneasy, and, ah, I must add, angry, but which I trust may now be considered at an end, even as to herself, and which is undoubtedly at an end as to, ah, others.' "'To what, Mr. Dorrit?' returned Mrs. General, with her gloves again somewhat excited. "'Can you allude?' I am at a loss to—do not say that, my dear madam," interrupted Mr. Dorrit. Mrs. General's voice, as it died away, pronounced the words, at a loss to imagine. After which Mr. Dorrit was seized with a doze for about a minute, out of which he sprang with spasmodic nimbleness. I refer, Mrs. General, to that, ah, strong spirit of opposition, or, hmm, I might say, ah, jealousy in Fanny, which has occasionally risen against the, ah, sense I entertain of, hmm, the claims of, ah, the lady with whom I have now the honour of communing. Mr. Dorrit, returned Mrs. General, is ever but too obliging, ever but too appreciative. If there have been moments when I have imagined that Miss Dorrit has indeed resented the favourable opinion Mr. Dorrit has formed of my services, I have found in that only too high opinion my consolation and recompense. "'Opinion of your services, madam?' said Mr. Dorrit. "'Of,' Mrs. General repeated, in an elegantly impressive manner, "'my services.' "'Of your—' "'Services alone, dear madam?' said Mr. Dorrit. "'I presume,' retorted Mrs. General, in her former impressive manner, "'of my services alone. For to what else?' said Mrs. General, with a slightly interrogative 
action of her glance, could I impute to, ah, yourself, Mrs. General, ah, hmm, to yourself and your merits, was Mr. Dorrit's rejoinder. Mr. Dorrit will pardon me, said Mrs. General, if I remark that this is not a time or place for the pursuit of the present conversation. Mr. Dorrit will excuse me if I remind him that Miss Dorrit is in the adjoining room, and is visible to myself while I utter her name. Mr. Dorrit will forgive me if I observe that I am agitated, and that I find there are moments when weaknesses I suppose myself to have subdued return with redoubled power. Mr. Dorrit will allow me to withdraw. "'Perhaps we may resume this, ah, interesting conversation,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'at another time, unless it should be what I hope it is not hmm, in any way disagreeable to our uh, Mrs. General.' "'Mr. Dorrit,' said Mrs. General, casting down her eyes as she rose of the bend, "'must ever claim my homage and obedience.' Mrs. General then took herself off in a stately way and not with that amount of trepidation upon her which might have been expected in a less remarkable woman. Mr. Dorrit, who had conducted his part of the dialogue with a certain majestic and admiring condescension, much as some people may be seen to conduct themselves in church, and to perform their part in the service, appeared, on the whole, very well satisfied with himself, and with Mrs. General, too. On the return of that lady to tea, she had touched herself up with a little powder and pomatum, and was not without moral enchantment likewise, the latter showing itself in much sweet patronage of manner towards Miss Dorrit, and in an air of as tender interest in Mr. Dorrit as were consistent with rigid propriety. At the close of the evening, when she rose to retire, Mr. Dorrit took her by the hand, as if he were going to lead her out in the piazza of the people, to walk a minuet by moonlight, and with great solemnity conducted her to the room door where he raised her knuckles to his lips. Having parted from her, with what may be conjectured to have been a rather bony kiss of a cosmetic flavour, he gave his daughter his blessings graciously, and having thus hinted that there was something remarkable in the wind, he again went to bed. He remained in the seclusion of his own chamber next morning, but, early in the afternoon, sent down his best compliments to Mrs. General by Mr. Tinkler and begged she would accompany Miss Dorrit on an airing without him. His daughter was dressed for Mrs. Myrtle's dinner before he appeared. He then presented himself in a refulgent condition as to his attire, but looking indefinably shrunken and old. However, as he was plainly determined to be angry with her if she so much as asked him how he was, she only ventured to kiss his cheek before accompanying him to Mrs. Myrtle's with an anxious heart. The distance that they had to go was very short but he was at his building-work again before the carriage had half-traversed it. Mrs. Myrtle received him with great distinction. The bosom was an admirable preservation, and on the best terms with itself. The dinner was very choice, and the company was very select. It was principally English, saving that it comprised the usual French Count and the usual Italian Marquise, decorative social milestones, always to be found in certain places, and varying very little in appearance. The table was long, and the dinner was long, and little Dorrit, overshadowed by a large pair of black whiskers and a large white cravat, lost sight of her father altogether, until a servant put a scrap of paper in her hand, with a whispered request from Mrs. Myrtle that she would read it directly. 
Mrs. Myrtle had written on it in pencil, "'Pray come and speak to Mr. Dorrit. I doubt if he is well.' She was hurrying to him, unobserved, when he got up out of his chair, and leaning over the table called to her, supposing her to be still in her place. "'Amy, Amy, my child!' The action was so unusual, to say nothing of his strange eager appearance, and strange eager voice, that it instantaneously caused a profound silence. "'Amy, my dear,' he repeated, "'will you go and see if Bob is on the lock?' She was at his side, and touching him, but he still perversely supposed her to be in her seat, and called out, still leaning over the table, "'Amy, Amy, I don't feel quite myself. <laughs> I don't know what's the matter with me. I particularly wish to see Bob.' Ah, of all the turnkeys, he's as much my friend as yours. See if Bob is in the lodge, and beg him to come to me." All the guests were now in consternation, and everybody rose. "'Dear father, I'm not there. I'm here by you.' "'Oh, you're here, Amy. Good, mm, good. Ah, call Bob.' If he has been relieved and is not on the lock, tell Mrs. Bangham to go and fetch him." She was gently trying to get him away, but he resisted, and would not go. "'I tell you, child,' he said petulantly, "'I can't be got up the narrow stairs without Bob. Ah, send for Bob, hmm? Send for Bob, best of all the turnkeys. Send for Bob.' He looked confusedly about him and, becoming conscious of the number of faces by which he was surrounded, addressed them. "'Ladies and gentlemen, the duty, ah, devolves upon me of, hmm, welcoming you to the Marshalsea. Welcome to the Marshalsea. The space is, ah, limited, limited. The parade might be wider, but you will find it apparently grow larger after a time, a time, ladies and gentlemen, and the air is, uh, all things considered, very good. It blows over the, ah, Surrey Hills, blows over the Surrey Hills. This is the snuggery, hmm, supported by a small subscription of the ah-collegiate body, in return for which hot water, general kitchen, and little domestic advantages. Those who are habituated to the ah-marshalsea are pleased to call me its father. I am accustomed to be complimented by strangers as the ah-father of the marshalsea. Certainly, if years of residence may establish a claim to so honourable a title, I may accept the conferred distinction. My child, ladies and gentlemen, my daughter, born here." She was not ashamed of it, or ashamed of him. She was pale and frightened, but she had no other care than to soothe him and get him away for his own dear sake. She was between him and the wondering faces, turned around upon his breast with her own face raised to his. He held her clasped in his left arm, and between whiles her low voice was heard tenderly imploring him to go away with her. "'Born here!' 
he repeated, shedding tears, "'bread here, ladies and gentlemen, my daughter, child of an unfortunate father, but, ah, always a gentleman, poor, no doubt, but, hmm, proud, always proud. It has become a not infrequent custom for my ah, personal admirers, personal admirers solely, to be pleased to express their desire to acknowledge my semi-official position here, by offering ah, little tributes, which usually take the form of ah, voluntary recognitions of my humble endeavours to mm, to uphold tone here uh, tone. i beg it to be understood that i do not consider myself compromised ah, not compromised ah, not a beggar no i repudiate the title at the same time, far be it from me to, to put upon the fine feelings by which my partial friends are actuated, the slight of scrupling to admit that those offerings are highly acceptable. On the contrary, they are most acceptable, in my child's name, if not in my own. I make the admission in the fullest manner at the same time reserving her, shall I say, my personal dignity. Ladies and gentlemen, God bless you all." By this time the exceeding mortification undergone by the bosom had occasioned the withdrawal of the greater part of the company into other rooms. The few who had lingered thus long followed the rest, and Little Dorrit and her father were left to the servants and themselves dearest and most precious to her, he would come with her now, would he not? He replied to her fervid entreaties that he would never be able to get up the narrow stairs without Bob. Where was Bob? Would nobody fetch Bob? Under pretence of looking for Bob, she got him out against the stream of gay company now pouring in for the evening assembly, and got him into a coach that had just set down its load, and got him home. The broad stairs of his Roman palace, were contracted in his failing sight to the narrow stairs of his London prison, and he would suffer no one but her to touch him, his brother excepted. They got him up to his room without help, and laid him down on his bed, and from that hour his poor maimed spirit, only remembering the place where it had broken its wings, cancelled the dream through which it had since groped, and knew of nothing beyond the marshalsea. When he heard the footsteps in the street, he took them for the old weary tread in the yards. When the hour came for locking up, he supposed all strangers to be excluded for the night. When the time for opening came again, he was so anxious to see Bob, that they were fain to patch up a narrative how that Bob, many a year dead then, gentle turnkey, had taken cold, but hoped to be out to-morrow, or the next day, or the next at farthest. He fell away into a weakness so extreme that he could not raise his hand, but he still protected his brother, according to his long usage, and would say with some complacency, fifty times a day, when he saw him standing by his bed, "'My good Frederick, sit down! You are very feeble indeed!' They tried him with Mrs. General, 
but he had not the faintest knowledge of her. Some injurious suspicion lodged itself in his brain that she wanted to supplant Mrs. Bangham, and that she was given to drinking. He charged her with it in no measured terms, and was so urgent with his daughter to go round to the marshal and entreat him to turn her out, that she was never reproduced after the first failure, saving that he once asked if Tip had gone outside. The remembrance of his two children, not present, seemed to have departed from him. But the child who had done so much for him, and had been so poorly repaid, was never out of his mind. Not that he spared her, or was fearful of her being spent by watching and fatigue, he was not more troubled on that score than he had usually been. No, he loved her in his old way. They were in the jail again, and she tended him, and he had constant need of her, and could not turn without her, and he even told her sometimes that he was content to have undergone a great deal for her sake. As to her, she bent over his bed with her quiet face against his, and would have laid down her own life to restore him. When he had been sinking in this painless way for two or three days, she observed him to be troubled by the ticking of his watch, a pompous gold watch, that made as great a to-do about its going as if nothing else went but itself and time. She suffered it to run down, but he was still uneasy, and showed that was not what he wanted. At length he roused himself to explain that he wanted money to be raised on his watch. He was quite pleased when she pretended to take it away for the purpose, and afterwards had a relish for his little tastes of wine and jelly that he had not had before. He soon made it plain that this was so, for, in another day or two, he sent off his sleeve-buttons and finger-rings. He had an amazing satisfaction in entrusting her with these errands, and appeared to consider it equivalent to making the most methodical and provident arrangements. After his trinkets, or such of them as he had been able to see about him, were gone, his clothes engaged his attention, and it is as likely as not that he was kept alive for some days by the satisfaction of sending them piece by piece to an imaginary pawnbroker's. Thus for ten days little Dorrit bent over his pillow, laying her cheek against his. Sometimes she was so worn out that for a few minutes they would slumber together. Then she would awake, to recollect with fast-flowing silent tears what it was that touched her face, and to see, stealing over the cherished face upon the pillow, a deeper shadow than the shadow of the Marshalsea wall. Quietly, quietly, all the lines of the plan of the great castle melted one after another. Quietly, quietly, the ruled and cross-ruled countenance on which they were traced became fair and blank. Quietly, quietly, the reflected marks of the prison bars and of the zigzag iron on the wall-top faded away. Quietly, quietly, the face subsided into a far younger likeness of her own than she had ever seen under the grey hair, and sank to rest. At first her uncle was stark distracted. "'Oh, my brother! Oh, William, William! You to go before me! You to go alone! You to go, and I to remain!' you so far superior so distinguished so noble i a poor useless creature fit for nothing and whom no one would have missed it did her for the time the good of having him to think of and to succour uncle dear uncle spare yourself spare me 
the old man was not deaf to the last words. When he did begin to restrain himself, it was that he might spare her. He had no care for himself, but with all the remaining power of the honest heart, stunned so long, and now awaking to be broken, he honoured and blessed her. "'Oh, God!' he cried, before they left the room, with his wrinkled hands clasped over her. "'Thou seest this daughter of my dear dead brother, all that I have looked upon with my half-blind and sinful eyes, thou hast discerned clearly, brightly. Not a hair of her head shall be harmed before thee. Thou wilt uphold her here to her last hour, and I know thou wilt reward her hereafter.' They remained in a dim room near until it was almost midnight, quiet and sad together. At times his grief would seek relief in a burst like that in which it had found its earliest expression. But besides that, his little strength would soon have been unequal to such strains. He never failed to recall her words, and to reproach himself, and calm himself. The only utterance with which he indulged his sorrow was the frequent exclamation that his brother was gone alone that they had been together in the outset of their lives, that they had fallen into misfortune together, that they had kept together through their many years of poverty, that they had remained together to that day, and that his brother was gone alone. Alone! They parted, heavy and sorrowful. She would not consent to leave him anywhere but in his own room, and she saw him lie down in his clothes upon his bed, and covered him with her own hands. Then she sank upon her own bed, and fell into a deep sleep, the sleep of exhaustion and rest, though not of complete release from a pervading consciousness of affliction. Sleep, good little Dorrit, sleep through the night. It was a moonlight night, but the moon rose late, being long past the full. When it was high in the peaceful firmament, it shone through half-closed lattice blinds into the solemn room where the stumblings and wanderings of a life had so lately ended. Two quiet figures were within the room, two figures equally still and impassive, equally removed by an untraversable distance from the teeming earth, and all that it contains, though soon to lie in it. One figure reposed upon the bed, the other, kneeling on the floor, drooped over it, the arms easily and peacefully resting on the coverlet, the face bowed down, so that the lips touched the hand over which, with its last breath, it had bent. The two brothers were before their father, far beyond the twilight judgment of this world, high above its mists and obscurities. End of Book Two Chapter Nineteen Book Two, Chapter Twenty of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Twenty introduces the next. The passengers were landing from the packet on the pier at Calais. A low-lying place and a low-spirited place Calais was with the tide ebbing out towards low-water mark. 
there had been no more water on the bar than had sufficed to float the packet in, and now the bar itself, with a shallow break of sea over it, looked like a lazy marine monster, just risen to the surface, whose form was indistinctly shown as it lay asleep. The meagre lighthouse, all in white, haunting the seaboard, as if it were the ghost of an edifice that had once had colour and rotundity, dropped melancholy tears after its late buffeting by the waves. The long rows of gaunt black piles, slimy and wet and weather-worn, with funeral garlands of seaweed twisted about them by the late tide, might have represented an unsightly marine cemetery. Every wave-washed, storm-beaten object was so low and so little, under the broad grey sky, in the noise of the wind and sea, and before the curling lines of surf, making at it ferociously, that the wonder was there was any Calais left, and that its low gates and low wall and low roofs and low ditches and low sand-hills and low ramparts and flat streets had not yielded long ago to the undermining and besieging sea, like the fortifications children make on the seashore. After slipping among oozy piles and planks, stumbling up wet steps, and encountering many salt difficulties, the passengers entered on their comfortless peregrination along the pier, where all the French vagabonds and English outlaws in the town, half the population, attended to prevent their recovery from bewilderment. After being minutely inspected by all the English, and claimed and reclaimed and counterclaimed as prizes by all the French, in a hand-to-hand -hand scuffle, three-quarters of a mile long, they were at last free to enter the streets, and to make off in their various directions, hotly pursued. Clennam, harassed by more anxieties than one, was among this devoted band, having rescued the most defenceless of his compatriots from situations of great extremity, he now went his way alone, or as nearly alone as he could be, with a native gentleman in a suit of grease and a cap of the same material, giving chase at a distance of some fifty yards, and continually calling after him, "'Hi! I say! You! Seer! I say! Nice hotel!' Even this hospitable person, however, was left behind at last, and Clennam pursued his way unmolested. There was a tranquil air in the town, after the turbulence of the channel and the beach, and its dullness in that comparison was agreeable. He met new groups of his countrymen, who had all a straggling air of having at one time overblown themselves, like certain uncomfortable kinds of flowers, and of being now mere weeds. They had all an air, too, of lounging out a limited round, day after day, which strongly reminded him of the Marshalsea. But, taking no further note of them than was sufficient to give birth to the reflection, he sought out a certain street and number which he kept in his mind. "'So, Panks said,' he murmured to himself as he stopped before a dull house answering to the address, "'I suppose his information to be correct, and his discovery among Mr. Casby's loose papers indisputable, but without it I should hardly have supposed this to be a likely place.' A dead sort of house, with a dead wall over the way, and a dead gateway at the side, where a pendant bell-handle produced two dead tinkles, and a knocker produced a dead, flat, surface-tapping, that seemed not to have depth enough in it to penetrate even the cracked door. However, the door jarred open on a dead sort of spring, and he closed it behind him as he entered a dull yard, soon brought to a close by another dead wall where an attempt had been made to train some creeping shrubs, which were dead, 
and to make a little fountain in a grotto, which was dry, and to decorate that with a little statue, which was gone. The entry to the house was on the left, and it was garnished, as the outer gateway was, with two printed bills in French and English, announcing furnished apartments to let, with immediate possession. A strong, cheerful peasant woman, all stocking, petticoat, white cap, and earring, stood here in a dark doorway, and said with a pleasant show of teeth, "'I say, see you?' Clennam, replying in French, said, "'The English lady.' He wished to see the English lady. "'Enter, then, and ascend, if you please,' returned the peasant woman, in French likewise. He did both, and followed her up a dark, bare staircase, to a back room on the first floor. Hence there was a gloomy view of the yard that was dull, and of the shrubs that were dead, and of the fountain that was dry, and of the pedestal of the statue that was gone. "'Monsieur Blandois,' said Clennam, "'With pleasure, monsieur.' Thereupon the woman withdrew, and left him to look at the room. It was the pattern of room always to be found in such a house, cool, dull, and dark, waxed floor very slippery, a room not large enough to skate in, nor adapted to the easy pursuit of any other occupation, red and white curtained windows, little straw mat, little round table with a tumultuous assemblage of legs underneath, clumsy rush-bottomed chairs, two great red velvet armchairs, affording plenty of space to be uncomfortable in, bureau, chimney-glass and several pieces pretending to be in one piece, pair of gaudy vases of very artificial flowers, between them a Greek warrior, with his helmet off, sacrificing a clock to the genius of France. After some pause, a door of communication with another room was opened, and a lady entered. She manifested great surprise on seeing Clennam, and her glance went round the room in search of someone else. "'Pardon me, Miss Wade. I am alone.' "'It was not your name that was brought to me.' "'No, I know that. Excuse me. I have already had experience that my name does not predispose you to an interview, and I ventured to mention the name of one I am in search of.' "'Pray,' he returned, motioning him to a chair so coldly that he remained standing. "'What name was it that you gave?' "'I mentioned the name of Blandois.' "'Blandois?' "'A name you are acquainted with.' "'It is strange,' she said, frowning, "'that you should still press an undesired interest in me, and my acquaintances in me, and my affairs. Mr. Clennam, I don't know what you mean.' "'Pardon me. You know the name?' "'What can you have to do with the name? "'What can I have to do with the name? "'What can you have to do with my knowing or not knowing any name? "'I know many names, and I have forgotten many more. "'This may be in the one class, or it may be in the other, "'or I may never have heard it. "'I am acquainted with no reason for examining myself "'or for being examined about it.' "'If you will allow me,' said Clennam, "'I will tell you my reason for pressing the subject.' I admit that I do press it, and I must beg you to forgive me if I do so, very earnestly. The reason is all mine. I do not insinuate that it is in any way yours. "'Well, sir,' she returned, repeating a little less haughtily than before her former invitation to him to be seated, to which he now deferred, as she seated herself. 
I am glad at least to know that this is not another bondswoman of some friend of yours who is bereft of free choice, and whom I have spirited away. I will hear your reason, if you please. First, to identify the person of whom we speak, said Clennam. Let me observe that it is the person you met in London some time back. You will remember meeting him near the river, in the Adelphi. "'You mix yourself most unaccountably with my business,' she replied, looking full at him with stern displeasure. "'How do you know that?' "'I entreat you not to take it ill. By mere accident.' "'What accident?' "'Solely the accident of coming upon you in the street and seeing the meeting.' "'Do you speak of yourself, or of someone else?' "'Of myself. I saw it.' "'To be sure, it was in the open street,' she observed, after a few moments of less and less angry reflection. Fifty people might have seen it. It would have signified nothing if they had.' "'Nor do I make my having seen it of any moment. Nor, otherwise than as an explanation of my coming here, do I connect my visit with it, or the favour that I have to ask.' "'Oh! You have to ask a favour. It occurred to me,' and the handsome face looked bitterly at him, "'that your manner was so softened, Mr. Clennam.' He was content to protest against this by a slight action, without contesting it in words. He then referred to Blandois' disappearance, of which it was probable she had heard. However probable it was to him, she had heard of no such thing. "'Let him look round him,' she said, "'and judge for himself what general intelligence was likely to reach the ears of a woman who had been shut up there, while it was rife, devouring her own heart.' When she had uttered this denial, which she believed to be true, she asked him what he meant by disappearance. That led to his narrating the circumstances in detail, and expressing something of his anxiety to discover what had really become of the man, and to repel the dark suspicions that clouded about his mother's house. She heard him with evident surprise, and with more marks of suppressed interest than he had seen in her. Still, they did not overcome her distant, proud, and self-secluded manner. When he had finished, she said nothing but these words. "'You have not yet told me, sir, what I have to do with it, or what the favour is. Will you be so good as to come to that?' "'I assume,' said Arthur, persevering, in his endeavour to soften her scornful demeanour, "'that being in communication, may I say, confidential communication, with this person?' "'You may say, of course, whatever you like,' she remarked. "'But I do not subscribe to your assumptions, Mr. Clennam.' or to any one's. "'That being, at least in personal communication with him,' said Clennam, changing the form of his position, in the hope of making it unobjectionable, "'you can tell me something of his antecedents, pursuits, habits, usual place of residence, can give me some little clue by which to seek him out in the likeliest manner, and either produce him, or establish what has become of him. This is the favour I ask.' and I ask it in a distress of mind, for which I hope you will feel some consideration. If you should have any reason for imposing conditions upon me, I will respect it without asking what it is." "'You chanced to see me in the street with the man,' she observed, after being to his mortification, evidently, more occupied with her own reflections on the matter than with his appeal. "'Then you knew the man before?' "'Not before. Afterwards. 
I never saw him before, but I saw him again, on this very night of his disappearance. In my mother's room, in fact. I left him there. You will read in this paper all that is known of him." He handed her one of the printed bills, which she read with a steady and attentive face. "'This is more than I knew of him,' she said, giving it back. Clennam's looks expressed his heavy disappointment, perhaps his incredulity, for she added, in the same unsympathetic tone, "'You don't believe it. Still, it is so. As to personal communication, it seems that there was personal communication between him and your mother, and yet you say you believe her declaration that she knows no more of him.' A sufficiently expressive hint of suspicion was conveyed in these words and in the smile by which they were accompanied, to bring the blood into Clennam's cheeks. "'Come, sir,' she said, with a cruel pleasure in repeating the stab, "'I will be as open with you as you can desire. I will confess that if I cared for my credit, which I do not, or had a good name to preserve, which I have not, for I am utterly indifferent to its being considered good or bad, I should regard myself as heavily compromised by having had anything to do with this fellow. Yet he never passed in at my door, never sat in colloquy with me, until midnight." She took her revenge for her old grudge in thus turning his subject against him. Hers was not the nature to spare him, and she had no compunction. "'That he is a low, mercenary wretch, that I first saw him prowling about Italy, where I was not long ago and that I hired him there as the suitable instrument of a purpose I happen to have. I have no objection to tell you. In short, it was worth my while, for my own pleasure, the gratification of a strong feeling, to pay a spy who would fetch and carry for money. I paid this creature, and I dare say that if I had wanted to make such a bargain, and if I could have paid him enough, and if he could have done it in the dark, free from all risk, he would have taken any life with as little scruple as he took my money. That, at least, is my opinion of him, and I see it is not very far removed from yours. Your mother's opinion of him, I am to assume, following your example of assuming this and that, was vastly different." "'My mother, let me remind you,' said Clennam, "'was first brought into communication with him in the unlucky course of business.' It appears to have been an unlucky course of business that last brought her into communication with him," returned Miss Wade, and business hours on that occasion were late. "'You imply,' said Arthur, smarting under these cool-handed thrusts, of which he had felt deeply the force already, "'that there was something—' "'Mr. Clennam,' she composedly interrupted, "'recollect that I do not speak by implication about the man. He is, I say again without disguise, a low, mercenary wretch. I suppose such a creature goes where there is occasion for him. If I had not had occasion for him, you would not have seen him and me together.' Wrung by her persistence in keeping that dark side of the case before him, of which there was a half-hidden shadow in his own breast, Clennam was silent. "'I have spoken of him as still living,' she added, "'but he may have been put out of the way for anything I know, for anything I care also. I have no further occasion for him.' With a heavy sigh, and a despondent air, Arthur Clennam slowly rose. She did not rise also, but said, 
having looked at him in the meanwhile with a fixed look of suspicion, and lips angrily compressed. "'He was the chosen associate of your dear friend Mr. Gowan, was he not? Why don't you ask your dear friend to help you?' The denial that he was a dear friend rose to Arthur's lips, but he repressed it, remembering his old struggles and resolutions, and said, "'Further than that he has never seen Blandois since Blandois set out for England, Mr. Gowan knows nothing additional about him. He was a chance acquaintance made abroad.' "'A chance acquaintance made abroad,' she repeated. "'Yes. Your dear friend has need to divert himself with all the acquaintances he can make, seeing what a wife he has. I hate his wife, sir.' The anger with which she said it, the more remarkable for being so much under her restraint, fixed Clennam's attention, and kept him on the spot. It flashed out of her dark eyes, as they regarded him, quivered in her nostrils, and fired the very breath she exhaled. But her face was otherwise composed into a disdainful serenity, and her attitude was as calmly and haughtily graceful as if she had been in a mood of complete indifference. "'All I will say is, Miss Wade,' he remarked, that you can have received no provocation to a feeling in which I believe you have no sharer. "'You may ask your dear friend, if you choose,' she returned, for his opinion upon that subject. "'I am scarcely on those intimate terms with my dear friend,' said Arthur, in spite of his resolutions. "'That would render my approaching the subject very probable, Miss Wade.' "'I hate him,' she returned worse than his wife, because I was once dupe enough, and false enough to myself almost to love him. You have seen me, sir, only on commonplace occasions, when I dare say you have thought me a commonplace woman, a little more self-willed than the generality. You don't know what I mean by hating, if you know me no better than that. You can't know, without knowing with what care, I have studied myself and people about me. For this reason, I have for some time inclined to tell you what my life has been, not to propitiate your opinion, for I set no value on it, but that you may comprehend, when you think of your dear friend and his dear wife, what I mean by hating. Shall I give you something I have written, and put by for your perusal, or shall I hold my hand?" Arthur begged her to give it to him. She went to the bureau, unlocked it, and took from an inner drawer a few folded sheets of paper. Without any conciliation of him, scarcely addressing him, rather speaking as if she were speaking to her own looking-glass, for the justification of her own stubbornness, she said, as she gave them to him, "'Now you may know what I mean by hating. No more of that. Sir, whether you find me temporarily and cheaply lodging in an empty London house, or in a Calais apartment, you find Harriet with me.' You may like to see her before you leave. Harriet, come in." She called Harriet again. The second call produced Harriet, once Tatty Coram. "'Here is Mr. Clennam,' said Miss Wade. "'Not come for you. He has given you up. I suppose you have by this time?' "'Having no authority or influence, yes,' assented Clennam. "'Not come in search of you, you see, but still seeking some one. He wants that Blandois man." "'With whom I saw you in the Strand in London,' hinted Arthur. "'If you know anything of him, Harriet, 
except that he came from Venice, which we all know, tell it to Mr. Clennam freely. "'I know nothing more about him,' said the girl. "'Are you satisfied?' Miss Wade inquired of Arthur. He had no reason to disbelieve them, the girl's manner being so natural as to be almost convincing, if he had had any previous doubts. He replied, "'I must seek for intelligence elsewhere.' He was not going in the same breath, but he had risen before the girl entered, and she evidently thought he was. She looked quickly at him, and said, "'Are they well, sir?' "'Oh!' She stopped herself in saying what would have been all of them glanced at Miss Wade, and said, "'Mr. and Mrs. Meagles.' "'They were, when I last heard of them. They are not at home. By the way, let me ask you, is it true that you were seen there?' "'Where? Where does any one say I was seen?' returned the girl, sullenly casting down her eyes. "'Looking in at the garden-gate of the cottage?' "'No,' said Miss Wade. She has never been near it. "'You're wrong, then,' said the girl. "'I went down there the last time we were in London. I went one afternoon, when you left me alone, and I did look in.' "'You poor spirited girl,' returned Miss Wade, with infinite contempt, "'does all our companionship, do all our conversations, do all your old complainings, tell for so little as that?' "'There was no harm in looking in at the gate for an instant.' said the girl. I saw by the windows that the family were not there. Why should you go near the place? Because I wanted to see, because I felt that I should like to look at it again. As each of the two handsome faces looked at the other, Clennam felt how each of the two natures must be constantly tearing the other to pieces. Oh, said Miss Wade, coldly subduing and removing her glance, if you had any desire to see the place where you led the life from which I rescued you, because you had found out what it was, that is another thing. But is that your truth to me? Is that your fidelity to me? Is that the common cause I make with you? You are not worth the confidence I have placed in you. You are not worth the favour I have shown you. You are no higher than a spaniel, and had better go back to the people who did worse than whip you. If you speak so of them— with any one else by to hear, you'll provoke me to take their part," said the girl. "'Go back to them,' Miss Wade retorted. "'Go back to them.' "'You know very well,' retorted Harriet in her turn, "'that I won't go back to them. You know very well that I have thrown them off, and never can, never shall, never will go back to them. Let them alone, then, Miss Wade.' "'You prefer their plenty to your less fat living here?' she rejoined. "'You exalt them, and slight me. What else should I have expected? I ought to have known it.' "'It's not so,' said the girl, flushing high. "'And you don't say what you mean. I know what you mean. You are reproaching me, underhanded, with having nobody but you to look to. And because I have nobody but you to look to, you think you ought to make me do, or not do, everything you please.' and not to put any affront upon me. You were as bad as they were, every bit. But I will not be quite tamed, and made submissive. I will say again that I went to look at the house, because I had often thought that I should like to see it once more. I will ask again how they are, because I once liked them, 
and at times thought they were kind to me. Hereupon Clennam said that he was sure they would still receive her kindly, if she should ever desire to return. "'Never,' said the girl passionately. "'I shall never do that. Nobody knows that better than Miss Wade, though she taunts me because she has made me her dependent. And I know I am so. I know she is overjoyed when she can bring it to my mind.' "'A good pretence,' said Miss Wade, with no less anger, haughtiness, and bitterness, "'but too threadbare to cover what I plainly see in this. My poverty will not bear competition with their money. Better go back at once. Better go back at once, and have done with it.' Arthur Clennam looked at them, standing a little distance asunder in the dull, confined room, each proudly cherishing her own anger, each with a fixed determination torturing her own breast, and torturing the others. He said a word or two of leave-taking, but Miss Wade barely inclined her head, and Harriet, with the assumed humiliation of an abject dependent and serf, but not without defiance for all that, made as if she were too low to notice, or to be noticed. He came down the dark winding stairs, into the yard, with an increased sense upon him of the gloom of the wall that was dead, and of the shrubs that were dead and of the fountain that was dry, and of the statue that was gone. Pondering much on what he had seen and heard in that house, as well as on the failure of all his efforts to trace the suspicious character who was lost, he returned to London and to England by the packet that had taken him over. On the way he unfolded the sheets of paper, and read in them what is reproduced in the next chapter. End of Book Two Chapter 20《Book 2 Chapter 21 of Little Dorrit This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book 2 Riches. Chapter 21 the history of a self-tormentor. I have the misfortune of not being a fool. From a very early age I have detected what those about me thought they hid from me. If I could have been habitually imposed upon, instead of habitually discerning the truth, I might have lived as smoothly as most fools do. My childhood was passed with a grandmother, that is to say, with a lady who represented that relative to me, and who took that title on herself. She had no claim to it. But I, being to that extent a little fool, had no suspicion of her. She had some children of her own family in her house, and some children of other people. All girls, ten in number, including me. We all lived together, and were educated together. I must have been about twelve years old, when I began to see how determinedly these girls patronized me. I was told I was an orphan. There was no other orphan among us and I perceived—here was the first disadvantage of not being a fool—that they conciliated me in an insolent pity, and in a sense of superiority. I did not set this down as a discovery rashly. I tried them often. I could hardly make them quarrel with me. When I succeeded with any of them, they were sure to come after an hour or two, and begin a reconciliation. I tried them over and over again. I never knew them wait for me to begin. They were always forgiving me, in their vanity and condescension, little images of grown people. 
one of them was my chosen friend. I loved that stupid mite in a passionate way that she could no more deserve than I can remember without feeling ashamed of, though I was but a child. She had what they called an amiable temper, an affectionate temper. She could distribute, and did distribute, pretty looks and smiles to every one among them. I believe there was not a soul in the place except myself, who knew that she did it purposely to wound and gall me. Nevertheless, I so loved that unworthy girl that my life was made stormy by my fondness for her. I was constantly lectured and disgraced for what was called trying her, in other words, charging her with her little perfidy, and throwing her into tears by showing her that I read her heart. However, I loved her faithfully, and one time I went home with her for the holidays. She was worse at home than she had been at school. She had a crowd of cousins and acquaintances, and we had dances at her house, and went out to dances at other houses, and, both at home and out, she tormented my love beyond endurance. Her plan was to make them all fond of her, and so drive me wild with jealousy, to be familiar and endearing with them all, and so make me mad with envying them. When we were left alone in our bedroom at night, I would reproach her with my perfect knowledge of her baseness, and then she would cry and cry, and say I was cruel, and then I would hold her in my arms till morning, loving her as much as ever, and often feeling as if, rather than suffer so, I could so hold her in my arms, and plunge to the bottom of a river, where I would still hold her after we were both dead. It came to an end, and I was relieved. In the family there was an aunt who was not fond of me. I doubt if any of the family liked me much, but I never wanted them to like me, being altogether bound up in the one girl. The aunt was a young woman, and she had a serious way with her eyes of watching me. She was an audacious woman, and openly looked compassionately at me. After one of the nights that I have spoken of, I came down into a greenhouse before breakfast. Charlotte, the name of my false young friend, had gone down before me, and I heard this aunt speaking to her about me as I entered. I stopped where I was among the leaves, and listened. The aunt said, Charlotte, Miss Wade is wearing you to death, and this must not continue. I repeat the very words I heard. Now, what did she answer? Did she say, It is I who am wearing her to death? I who am keeping her on a rack, and am the executioner? Yet she tells me every night that she loves me devotedly, though she knows what I make her undergo? No. My first memorable experience was true to what I knew her to be, and to all my experience. She began sobbing and weeping, to secure the aunt's sympathy to herself, and said, Dear aunt, she has an unhappy temper. Other girls at school, besides I, try hard to make it better. We all try hard. Upon that the aunt fondled her, as if she had said something noble instead of despicable and false, and kept up the infamous pretense by replying, But there are reasonable limits, my dear love, to everything and I see that this poor miserable girl causes you more constant and useless distress than even so good an effort justifies. The poor miserable girl came out of her concealment, as you may be prepared to hear, and said, Send me home. I never said another word to either of them, or to any of them, but send me home, or I will walk home alone night and day. When I got home, I told my supposed grandmother that, unless I was sent away to finish my education somewhere else, before that girl came back, or before any of them came back, I would burn my sight away 
by throwing myself into the fire, rather than I would endure to look at their plotting faces. I went among young women next, and I found them no better. Fair words and fair pretenses, but I penetrated below those assertions of themselves and depreciations of me, and they were no better. Before I left them, I learned that I had no grandmother and no recognised relation. I carried the light of that information both into my past and into my future. It showed me many new occasions on which people triumphed over me, when they made a pretence of treating me with consideration, or doing me a service. A man of business had a small property in trust for me. I was to be a governess. I became a governess, and went into the family of a poor nobleman, where there were two daughters, little children, but the parents wished them to grow up, if possible, under one instructress. The mother was young and pretty. From the first she made a show of behaving to me with great delicacy. I kept my resentment to myself, but I knew very well that it was her way of petting the knowledge that she was my mistress, and might have behaved differently to her servant if it had been her fancy. I say I did not resent it, nor did I, but I showed her, by not gratifying her, that I understood her. When she pressed me to take wine, I took water. If there happened to be anything choice at table, she always sent it to me, but I always declined it, and ate of the rejected dishes. These disappointments of her patronage were a sharp retort, and made me feel independent. I liked the children. They were timid, but on the whole disposed to attach themselves to me. There was a nurse, however, in the house, a rosy-faced woman, always making an obtrusive pretense of being gay and good-humoured, who had nursed them both, and who had secured their affections before I saw them. I could almost have settled down to my fate, but for this woman. Her artful devices for keeping herself before the children in constant competition with me might have blinded many in my place, but I saw through them from the first. On the pretext of arranging my rooms, and waiting on me, and taking care of my wardrobe, all of which she did busily, she was never absent. The most crafty of her many subtleties was her feint of seeking to make the children fonder of me. She would lead them to me, and coax them to me. Come to good Miss Wade, come to dear Miss Wade, come to pretty Miss Wade. She loves you very much. Miss Wade is a clever lady, who has read heaps of books, and can tell you far better and more interesting stories than I know. Come and hear Miss Wade. How could I engage their attentions when my heart was burning against these ignorant designs? How could I wonder when I saw their innocent faces shrinking away, and their arms twining round her neck instead of mine? Then she would look up at me, shaking their curls from her face, and say, "'They'll come round soon, Miss Wade. They're very simple and loving, ma'am. Don't be at all cast down about it, ma'am. Exulting over me.' There was another thing the woman did. At times, when she saw that she had safely plunged me into a black despondent brooding by these means, she would call the attention of the children to it, and would show them the difference between herself and me. "'Hush! Poor Miss Wade is not well. Don't make a noise, my dears. Her head aches. Come and comfort her. Come and ask her if she is better. Come and ask her to lie down. I hope you have nothing on your mind, ma'am. Don't take on, ma'am, and be sorry.' It became intolerable. Her ladyship, my mistress, coming in one day when I was alone, and at the height of feeling that I could support it no longer, I told her I must go. I could not bear the presence of that woman Dawes. "'Miss Wade, poor Dawes is devoted to you, would do anything for you. I knew beforehand she would say so. I was quite prepared for it. 
I only answered, it was not for me to contradict my mistress. I must go. I hope, Miss Wade, she returned, instantly assuming the tone of superiority she had always so thinly concealed, that nothing I have ever said or done, since we have been together, has justified your use of that disagreeable word, mistress. It must have been wholly inadvertent on my part. Pray tell me what it is. I replied that I had no complaint to make, either of my mistress or to my mistress, but I must go. She hesitated a moment, and then sat down beside me, and laid her hand on mine, as if that honour would obliterate any remembrance. Miss Wade, I fear you are unhappy, through causes over which I have no influence. I smiled, thinking of the experience the word awakened, and said, I have an unhappy temper, I suppose. I did not say that. It is an easy way of accounting for anything, said I. It may be, but I did not say so. What I wish to approach is something very different. My husband and I have exchanged some remarks upon the subject, when we have observed with pain that you have not been easy with us. Easy? Oh, you are such great people, my lady, said I. I am unfortunate in using a word which may convey a meaning, and evidently does, quite opposite to my intention. She had not expected my reply, and it shamed her. I only mean not happy with us. It is a difficult topic to enter on. But, from one young woman to another, perhaps, in short, we have been apprehensive that you may allow some family circumstances, of which no one can be more innocent than yourself, to prey upon your spirits. If so, let us entreat you not to make them a cause of grief. My husband himself, as is well known, formerly had a very dear sister, who was not in law his sister, but who was universally beloved and respected. I saw directly that they had taken me in for the sake of the dead woman, whoever she was, and to have that boast of me an advantage of me. I saw in the nurse's knowledge of it an encouragement to goad me as she had done, and I saw in the children shrinking away a vague impression that I was not like other people. I left that house that night. After one or two short and very similar experiences, which are not to the present purpose, I entered another family, where I had but one pupil, a girl of fifteen, who was the only daughter. The parents here were elderly people, people of station and rich. A nephew whom they had brought up was a frequent visitor at the house, among many other visitors, and he began to pay me attention. I was resolute in repulsing him, for I had determined, when I went there, that no one should pity me or condescend to me. But he wrote me a letter. It led to our being engaged to be married. He was a year younger than I, and young-looking even when that allowance was made. He was on absence from India, where he had a post that was soon to grow into a very good one. In six months we were to be married, and were to go to India, and I was to stay in the house, and was to be married from the house. Nobody objected to any part of the plan. I cannot avoid saying he admired me, but, if I could, I would. Vanity has nothing to do with the declaration, for his admiration worried me. He took no pains to hide it, and caused me to feel among the rich people as if he had bought me for my looks, and made a show of his purchase to justify himself. They appraised me in their own minds, I saw, and were curious to ascertain what my full value was. I resolved that they should not know. I was immovable and silent before them, and would have suffered any one of them to kill me sooner than I would have laid myself out to bespeak their approval. He told me I did not do myself justice. I told him I did, 
and it was because I did, and meant to do so to the last, that I would not stoop to propitiate any of them. He was concerned, and even shocked, when I added that I wished he would not parade his attachment before them, but he said he would sacrifice even the honest impulses of his affection to my peace. Under that pretense he began to retort upon me. By the hour together he would keep at a distance from me, talking to any one rather than to me. I have sat alone and unnoticed half an evening while he conversed with his young cousin, my pupil. I have seen all the while in people's eyes that they thought the two looked nearer on an equality than he and I. I have sat divining their thoughts until I have felt that his young appearance made me ridiculous, and have raged against myself for ever loving him. For I did love him once, undeserving as he was, and little as he thought of all these agonies that it cost me agonies which should have made him wholly and gratefully mine to his life's end, I loved him. I bore with his cousin's praising him to my face, and with her pretending to think that it pleased me, but full well knowing that it rankled in my breast for his sake. While I have sat in his presence, recalling all my slights and wrongs, and deliberating whether I should not fly from the house at once and never see him again, I have loved him. His aunt— my mistress, you will please to remember, deliberately, wilfully, added to my trials and vexations. It was her delight to expatiate on the style in which we were to live in India, and on the establishment we should keep, and the company we should entertain when he got his advancement. My pride rose against this barefaced way of pointing out the contrast my married life was to present to my then dependent and inferior position. I suppressed my indignation but I showed her that her intention was not lost upon me, and I repaid her annoyance by affecting humility. What she described would surely be a great deal too much honour for me, I would tell her. I was afraid I might not be able to support so great a change. Think of a mere governess, her daughter's governess, coming to that high distinction. It made her uneasy, and made them all uneasy, when I answered in this way. They knew that I fully understood her. It was at the time when my troubles were at their highest, and when I was most incensed against my lover, for his ingratitude in caring as little as he did, for the innumerable distresses and mortifications I underwent on his account, that your dear friend Mr. Gowan appeared at the house. He had been intimate there for a long time, but had been abroad. He understood the state of things at a glance, and he understood me. He was the first person I had ever seen in my life who had understood me. He was not in the house three times, before I knew that he accompanied every movement of my mind. In his coldly, easy way with all of them, and with me, and with the whole subject, I saw it clearly. In his light protestations of admiration of my future husband, in his enthusiasm regarding our engagement and our prospects, in his hopeful congratulations on our future wealth, and his despondent references to his own poverty, all equally hollow, and jesting, and full of mockery, I saw it clearly. He made me feel more and more resentful, and more and more contemptible, by always presenting to me everything that surrounded me with some new hateful light upon it, while he pretended to exhibit in its best aspect for my admiration and his own. He was like the dressed-up death in the Dutch series. Whatever figure he took upon his arm, whether it was youth or age, beauty or ugliness, whether he danced with it, sang with it, played with it, or prayed with it, he made it ghastly. You will understand, then, that when your dear friend complimented me, he really condoled with me, that when he soothed me under my vexations, 
he laid bare every smarting wound I had, and when he declared my faithful swain to be the most loving young fellow in the world, with the tenderest heart that ever beat, he touched my old misgivings that I was made ridiculous. These were not great services, you may say. They were acceptable to me, because they echoed my own mind and confirmed my own knowledge. I soon began to like the society of your dear friend better than any other. When I perceived, which I did almost as soon, that jealousy was growing out of this, I liked the society still better. Had I not been subject to jealousy, and were the endurances to be all mine? No, let him know what it was. I was delighted that he should know it. I was delighted that he should feel keenly, and I hoped he did. More than that, he was tame in comparison with Mr. Gowan, who knew how to address me on equal terms, and how to anatomize the wretched people around us. This went on, until the aunt, my mistress, took it upon herself to speak to me. It was scarcely worth alluding to. She knew I meant nothing. But she suggested from herself, knowing it was only necessary to suggest, that it might be better if I were a little less companionable with Mr. Gowan. I asked her how she could answer for what I meant. She could always answer, she replied, from a meaning nothing wrong. I thanked her, but said I would prefer to answer for myself, and to myself. Her other servants would probably be grateful for good characters, but I wanted none. Other conversation followed, and induced me to ask her how she knew that it was only necessary for her to make a suggestion to me to have it obeyed. Did she presume on my birth, or on my hire? I was not bought, body and soul. She seemed to think that her distinguished nephew had gone into a slave-market, and purchased a wife. It would probably have come, sooner or later, to the end to which it did come, but she brought it to its issue at once. She told me, with assumed commiseration, that I had an unhappy temper. On this repetition of the old wicked injury, I withheld no longer, but exposed her all I had known of her and seen in her, and all I had undergone within myself since I had occupied the despicable position of being engaged to her nephew. I told her that Mr. Gowan was the only relief I had had in my degradation, that I had borne it too long, and that I shook it off too late, but that I would see none of them more. And I never did. Your dear friend followed me to my retreat, and was very droll on the severance of the connection, though he was very sorry, too, for the excellent people, in their way the best he had ever met and deplored the necessity of breaking mere house-flies on the wheel. He protested before long, and far more truly than I then supposed, that he was not worth acceptance by a woman of such endowments, and such power of character. But—well, well, your dear friend amused me, and amused himself, as long as it suited his inclinations, and then reminded me that we were both people of the world that we both understood mankind, that we both knew there was no such thing as romance, that we were both prepared for going different ways to seek our fortunes like people of sense, and that we both foresaw that whenever we encountered one another again, we should meet as the best friends on earth. So he said, and I did not contradict him. It was not very long before I found that he was courting his present wife, and that she had been taken away to be out of his reach. I hated her then, quite as much as I hate her now, and naturally, therefore, could desire nothing better than that she should marry him. 
but I was restlessly curious to look at her, so curious that I felt it to be one of the few sources of entertainment left to me. I travelled a little, travelled until I found myself in her society, and in yours. Your dear friend, I think, was not known to you then, and had not given you any of those signal marks of his friendship which he has bestowed upon you. In that company I found a girl, in various circumstances, of whose position there was a singular likeness to my own, and whose character I was interested, and pleased to see much of the rising against swollen patronage and selfishness, calling themselves kindness, protection, benevolence, and other fine names, which I have described as inherent in my nature. I often heard it said, too, that she had an unhappy temper, well understanding what was meant by the convenient phrase and wanting a companion with the knowledge of what I knew, I thought I would try to release the girl from her bondage and sense of injustice. I have no occasion to relate that I succeeded. We have been together ever since, sharing my small means. End of Book Two Chapter Twenty One Book Two, Chapter Twenty Two of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Twenty Two. Who passes by this road so late? Arthur Clennam had made his unavailing expedition to Calais in the midst of a great pressure of business. A certain barbaric power, with valuable possessions on the map of the world, had occasion for the services of one or two engineers, quick in invention, and determined in execution. Practical men, who could make the men and means their ingenuity perceived to be wanted, out of the best materials they could find at hand, and who were as bold and fertile in the adaptation of such materials to their purpose, as in the conception of their purpose itself. This power, being a barbaric one, had no idea of stowing away a great national object in a circumlocution office, as strong wine is hidden from the light in a cellar until its fire and youth are gone, and the labourers who worked in the vineyard and pressed the grapes are dust. With characteristic ignorance it acted on the most decided and energetic notions of how to do it, and never showed the least respect for, or gave any quarter to, the great political science, how not to do it. Indeed, it had a barbarous way of striking the latter art and mystery dead, in the person of any enlightened subject who practised it. Accordingly, the men who were wanted were sought out and found, which was in itself a most uncivilised and irregular way of proceeding. Being found, they were treated with great confidence and honour, which again showed dense political ignorance, and were invited to come at once and do what they had to do. In short, they were regarded as men who meant to do it, engaging with other men who meant it to be done. Daniel Doyce was one of the chosen. There was no foreseeing at that time whether he would be absent months or years. The preparations for his departure, and the conscientious arrangements for him of all the details and results of their joint business, had necessitated labour within a short compass of time which had occupied Clennam day and night. He had slipped across the water in his first leisure, 
and had slipped as quickly back again for his farewell interview with Doyce. Him Arthur now showed, with pains and care, the state of their gains and losses, responsibilities and prospects. Daniel went through it all in his patient manner, and admired it all exceedingly. He audited the accounts, as if they were a far more ingenious piece of mechanism than he had ever constructed, and afterwards stood looking at them, weighing his hat over his head by the brims, as if he were absorbed in the contemplation of some wonderful engine. "'It's all beautiful, Clennam, in its regularity and order. Nothing can be plainer, nothing can be better. I am glad you approve, Doyce. Now, as to the management of your capital while you are away, and as to the conversion of so much of it as the business may need from time to time—' His partner stopped him. "'As to that, and as to everything else of that kind, all rests with you. You will continue in all such matters to act for both of us, as you have done hitherto, and to lighten my mind of a load it is much relieved from. Though, as I often tell you,' returned Clennam, "'you unreasonably depreciate your business qualities.' "'Perhaps so,' said Doyce, smiling, "'and perhaps not. Anyhow, I have a calling that I have studied more than such matters, and that I am better fitted for. I have perfect confidence in my partner, and I am satisfied that he will do what is best. If I have a prejudice connected with money, and money figures,' continued Doyce, laying that plastic workman's thumb of his on the lapel of his partner's coat, "'it is against speculating.' I don't think I have any other. I dare say I entertain that prejudice only because I have never given my mind fully to the subject. But you shouldn't call it a prejudice, said Clennam. My dear Doyce, it is the soundest sense. I am glad you think so, returned Doyce, with his grey eye looking kind and bright. It so happens, said Clennam, that just now, not half an hour before you came down, I was saying the same thing to Panks, who looked in here. We both agreed that to travel out of safe investments is one of the most dangerous, as it is one of the most common of those follies which often deserve the name of vices. Panks, said Doyce, tilting up his hat at the back and nodding with an air of confidence, aye, 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 that's a cautious fellow. He is a very cautious fellow indeed, returned Arthur, quite a specimen of caution. They both appeared to derive a larger amount of satisfaction from the cautious character of Mr. Panks than was quite intelligible, judged by the surface of their conversation. "'And now,' said Daniel, looking at his watch, "'as time and tide wait for no man, my trusty partner, and as I am ready for starting bag and baggage at the gate below, let me say a last word. I want you to grant a request of mine.' "'Any request you can make, except—' Clennam was quick with his exception, for his partner's face was quick in suggesting it. "'Except that I will abandon your invention.' "'That's the request, and you know it is,' said Doyce. "'I say no, then. I say positively no. Now that I have begun, I will have some definite reason, some responsible statement, something in the nature of a real answer, from those people. "'You will not,' returned Doyce, shaking his head. "'Take my word for it. You never will.' "'At least I'll try,' said Clennam. "'It will do me no harm to try.' 
"'I am not certain of that,' rejoined Doyce, laying his hand persuasively on his shoulder. "'It has done me harm, my friend. It has aged me, tired me, vexed me, disappointed me. It does no man any good to have his patience worn out, and to think himself ill-used. I fancy, even already, that unavailing attendance on delays and evasions has made you something less elastic than you used to be. Private anxieties may have done that for the moment, said Clennam, but not official harrying. Not yet. I am not hurt yet. Then you won't grant my request? Decidedly no, said Clennam. I should be ashamed if I submitted to be soon driven out of the field, where a much older and a much more sensitively interested man contended with fortitude so long. As there was no moving him, Daniel Doyce returned the grasp of his hand, and, casting a farewell look round the counting-house, went downstairs with him. Doyce was to go to Southampton to join the small staff of his fellow-travellers, and a coach was at the gate, well furnished and packed, and ready to take him there. The workmen were at the gate to see him off, and were mightily proud of him. "'Good luck to you, Mr. Doyce,' said one of the number. "'Wherever you go, they'll find as they've got a man among em, a man as knows his tools, and as his tools knows, a man as is willing, and a man as is able, and if that's not a man, where is a man?' This oration from a gruff volunteer in the background, not previously suspected of any powers in that way, was received with three loud cheers, and the speaker became a distinguished character for ever afterwards. In the midst of the three loud cheers, Daniel gave them all a hearty, "'Good-bye, men!' and the coach disappeared from sight, as if the concussion of the air had blown it out of bleeding-heart yard. Mr. Baptist, as a grateful little fellow, in a position of trust, was among the workmen, and had done as much towards the cheering as a mere foreigner could. In truth, no men on earth can cheer like Englishmen, who do so rally one another's blood and spirit when they cheer in earnest, that the stir is like the rush of their whole history, with all its standards waving at once, from Saxon Alfred's downwards. Mr. Baptist had been in a manner whirled away before the onset, and was taking his breath in quite a scared condition when Clennam beckoned him to follow upstairs, and return the books and papers to their places. In the lull consequent on the departure, in that first vacuity which ensues on every separation, foreshadowing the great separation that is always overhanging all mankind, Arthur stood at his desk, looking dreamily out at a gleam of sun. But his liberated attention soon reverted to the theme that was foremost in his thoughts, and began, for the hundredth time, to dwell upon every circumstance that had impressed itself upon his mind, on the mysterious night when he had seen the man at his mother's. Again the man jostled him in the crooked street, again he followed the man and lost him, again he came upon the man in the courtyard looking at the house, again he followed the man and stood beside him on the doorsteps. "'Who passes by this road so late, compagnon de la Majolaine, who passes by this road so late, always gay. It was not the first time by many that he had recalled a song of the child's game, of which the fellow had hummed a verse while they stood side by side. But he was so unconscious of having repeated it audibly that he started to hear the next verse. Of all the king's knights tis the flower, 
compagnon de la Majolaine. Of all the king's knights, tis the flower, always gay. Cavalletto had deferentially suggested the words and tune, supposing him to have stopped short for want of more. Ah, you know the song, Cavalletto. By Bacchus, yes, sir. They all know it in France. I've heard it many times, sung by the little children. The last time when it I have heard, said Mr. Baptist, formerly Cavalletto, who usually went back to his native construction of sentences when his memory went near home, is from a sweet little voice, a little voice, very pretty, very innocent, altro. The last time I heard it, returned Arthur, was in a voice quite the reverse of pretty, and quite the reverse of innocent. He said it more to himself than to his companion, and added to himself, repeating the man's next words, "'Death of my life, sir, it's my character to be impatient.' "'Eh?' cried Cavalletto, astounded, and with all his colour gone in a moment. "'What is the matter?' "'Sir, you know where I have heard that song the last time.' With his rapid native action, his hands made the outline of a high hook nose, pushed his eyes near together, dishevelled his hair, puffed out his upper lip to represent a thick moustache, and threw the heavy end of an ideal cloak over his shoulder. While doing this, with a swiftness incredible to one who has not watched an Italian peasant, he indicated a very remarkable and sinister smile. The whole change passed over him like a flash of light, and he stood in the same instant, pale and astonished, before his patron. "'In the name of fate and wonder,' said Clennam, "'what do you mean?' "'Do you know a man of the name of Blandois?' "'No,' said Mr. Baptist, shaking his head. "'You have just now described a man who was by when you heard that song, have you not?' "'Yes,' said Mr. Baptist, nodding fifty times. "'And was he not called Blandois?' "'No,' said Mr. Baptist. "'Altro, altro, altro, altro!' He could not reject the name sufficiently with his head and his right forefinger going at once. "'Stay!' cried Clennam, spreading out the handbill on his desk. "'Was this the man? You can understand what I read aloud?' "'Altogether. Perfectly.' "'But look at it, too. Come here, and look over me while I read.' Mr. Baptist approached, followed every word with his quick eyes, saw and heard it all out with the greatest impatience, and clapped his two hands flat upon the bill, as if he had fiercely caught some noxious creature, and cried, looking eagerly at Clennam, "'It is the man! Behold him!' "'This is of far greater moment to me,' said Clennam, in great agitation, "'that you can imagine. Tell me where you knew the man.' Mr. Baptist, releasing the paper very slowly, and with much discomfiture, and drawing himself back two or three paces, and making as though he dusted his hands, returned very much against his will. "'At Marsiglia, Marseille.' "'What was he? A prisoner? And altro? I believe, yes, and—' Mr. Baptist crept closer again to whisper it. "'Assassin!' Clennam fell back as if the word had struck him a blow. So terrible did it make his mother's communication with the man appear. Cavalletto dropped on one knee, and implored him, with a redundancy of gesticulation, to hear what had brought himself into such foul company. He told with perfect truth 
how it had come of a little contraband trading, and how he had in time been released from prison, and how he had gone away from those antecedents. How, at the house of entertainment called the Break of Day, at Chalon on the Saone, he had been awakened in his bed at night by the same assassin, then assuming the name of Lanier, though his name had formerly been Rigaud. How the assassin had proposed that they should join their fortunes together, how he held the assassin in such dread and aversion that he had fled from him at daylight, and how he had ever since been haunted by the fear of seeing the assassin again, and being claimed by him as an acquaintance. When he had related this, with an emphasis and poise on the word assassin, peculiarly belonging to his own language, and which did not serve to render it less terrible to Clennam, he suddenly sprang to his feet, pounced upon the bill again, and with a vehemence that would have been absolute madness in any man of northern origin, cried, "'Behold! the same assassin! Here he is!' In his passionate raptures he at first forgot the fact that he had lately seen the assassin in London. On his remembering it, it suggested hope to Clennam that the recognition might be of later date than the night of the visit at his mother's. But Cavalletto was too exact and clear about time and place to leave any opening for doubt that it had preceded that occasion. "'Listen,' said Arthur, very seriously, "'this man, as we have read here, has wholly disappeared.' "'Of it uh, I am well content,' said Cafaletto, raising his eyes piously. "'A thousand thanks to heaven, accursed assassin!' "'Not so,' returned Clennam, "'for until something more is heard of him, I can never know an hour's peace.' "'Enough, benefactor. That is quite another thing. A million of excuses.' "'Now, Cavaletto,' said Clennam, gently turning him by the arm, so that they looked into each other's eyes, "'I am certain that for the little I have been able to do for you, you are the most sincerely grateful of men.' "'I swear it!' cried the other. "'I know it. If you could find this man—' or discover what has become of him, or gain any later intelligence whatever of him, he would render me a service above any other service I could receive in the world, and would make me, with far greater reason, as grateful to you as you are to me. "'I know not where to look,' cried the little man, kissing Arthur's hand in a transport. "'I know not where to begin. I know not where to go.' but a uh, courage enough it matters not i go in this instant of time not a word to any one but me cavaletto altro cried cavaletto and was gone with great speed end of book 2 chapter 22「